Dear God, I just thank you so much that we can come together this morning boldly in your presence. That as I, as I think about this lesson and how the veil separated the people, and they were even separated out of the, the holy place, and could only go so far into the, into the outer court, only up to the altar. And uh, they had to rely on a, a priest who had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin to have that um, drawing near to you. And yet we, we, we just have it all. We can just walk right into your um, throne room of grace and sit at your feet and know that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with words that we can't even verbalize and that the Son is at your right hand pleading on and interceding on our behalf. Father, what a privilege that is. And sometimes I think we, we don't even really understand the immensity of that privilege and what you have done for us in that once-for-all sacrifice. And so as, as we unpack all this today, I pray that you would meet us here, that you would just open our hearts and our minds to your truth, that, um, Father, you'd pierce our hearts, that we would have a better understanding. I don't care how long we've been a believer. I know sometimes I, I, I just sit down and I think I'm not sure I really fully get it. And um, that's really something to say for someone that's been teaching for 28 years. But sometimes I think I, I'm, I really haven't absorbed completely that sacrifice that your son did for us and the, and the horribleness of my sin Yet I, I know what a sinner I am, and I am grateful that you've made that provision for us. Father, teach us. Um, help us to understand. Give us greater depth, greater awareness. Give us those aha moments that we might love you more and want to live a transformed life that reflects who you are and who your son is. We commit our time to you now in your son's most precious name. Amen. Okay. This was a long lesson, wasn't it? It's kind of a long lesson. I had thought about dividing it up, but then decided um, not to. Next week will be shorter, I promise. There are only 13 verses next week instead of 20-some or 30 or however many there are. But this is an interesting lesson. I hope you found it interesting. We, we could go off on all kinds of tangents today with the tabernacle and the Day of Atonement and all of the sacrifices. It's really interesting to go back into the Old Testament and study all that. But I do believe having a greater awareness and understanding of these things that were laid out in the old helps us better appreciate what Christ did for us. I know that's the effect that it had on me the first time I studied this, and it still continues. I've always said I don't think you really understand the New Testament until you understand the old. And those of you all in here that have walked through several of these in the Old Testament, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? When you start delving into the Old Testament, then the, the new comes alive, and you begin to realize the depth and the beauty of what Christ did for us. And I hope that today's lesson and next week, too, really does that for you. So we're kind of contrasting this. We have a lot of contrast this week, don't we? We're really looking at what was the economy and the ritual practices of the old and then how Christ fulfilled it in his once-for-all sacrifice. So with that said, let's, let's start digging into our homework. In chapter 8 last week, um, there was a mention of how these things serve as a shadow and a copy of the heavenly things. And this week, he's going to develop that even further by going back and talking about those earthly things to show us how they are a copy and a shadow 
of the heavenly things. And he's going to start. He mentioned the tabernacle, the tent, last week, and now he's going to develop it more. And I think it's interesting. I don't know if you caught that little phrase that said, you know, we, we're not going to right now go into detail about that. But, but do you know why it hit me? I, I think so Gentilishness. Why would he need to go into detail? These are Jews. They knew all this. These were Jews who had gone through the practice of taking their, their sin offering and their burnt offerings up to the altar. They, they didn't need a lot of detail. They knew what these things were. We're the people at a disadvantage that we don't really know what, what went on and how it occurred and what was happening, what the priests were doing and why they were doing it. So it behooves us to study that. Understand? Okay, so we, we looked first at the tabernacle, and I said, read through 25 and 26 of Exodus. And you could get caught in that for hours, and I hope you didn't do that. But I wanted you to just get kind of a broad view of what this tabernacle was like. Give me some of your insights that you discovered as you read through those two chapters in Exodus. Don't all speak at once. I heard something. What did I hear? What did you just notice? Yeah. What anything you know? What stuck out at you about it? It was so specific and so perfect Yeah. There was did you notice all the pure gold? We're not talking, I mean, there were things that were overlaid with gold, but there were a number of things. One, the lampstand, pure gold. Yeah, the bowls were pure gold. Pure gold's very heavy. You know, I have a couple of gold cougarans. They're about this big um, that we got when uh, Vance's dad died. He had them, and they're, they're real heavy. They're very heavy for as small as they are, so real gold is heavy. Lots of that. What else was there? Besides all the pure gold, did you notice? Yeah, just about the tabernacle itself, as you read through it. Lots of layers. And what were some of those layers? Do you remember? There were fine skins, goat, fine skins. Gopher skins, different kinds of skins, lots of linen. Uh, linen was, would have been more expensive. Um, lots of um, expensive colored threads that were woven into it. Now, when you just think about all of these materials that went into the building of this tabernacle, and particularly the, the gold and even the bronze laver, I mean, the, the laver was all bronze which is a precious metal, not as precious as gold, but still a precious metal. What is it? What images are drawn in your mind as you try to picture what this looked like? And I gave you, I gave you this, so you could kind of get a little bit of schematic of how this whole thing is laid out. But try to get an image of what that tabernacle looked like. And let me give you a little background, too, because we, we weren't looking at this. But when they, they're in the wilderness with this tabernacle, 
and they set it up. It's portable. It can be moved so that when God says, let's move, they can pack it up and they can move it. And they have very specific instructions on how they are to do this and how they are to move it. But when they're camped there, if you just imagine this tabernacle, you've got the 12 tribes are very specifically encamped around the four sides of it. They are told, you can find on the internet pictures of that, where how they are laid out, and they're very orderly. Again, that specific and detailed and orderly, the 12 tribes on the four sides of, of the tabernacle when, when they camp about it. So all of them, it's in the center. Here's this tabernacle in the center of their encampments so that wherever they are, they can see it. There it is. Okay, now think about the beauty of this tabernacle. What would it have looked like to you? Try to put yourself in their shoes. That's what I want you to get a feel for. Are you having trouble hearing me? Really? Okay, is anybody else having trouble hearing me? You are? What? Is it not loud? It's muffled. Okay. Um, Jim, could you run get Steve? Do you mind? Tell him they're complaining. They're saying that the sound is muffled. But it's not there, but it is there. Thank you. Now that we got rid of him. Okay, can you tell I'm a first child and he's a baby? I'm really not a first child. I'm a third, but there's five and a half years in between two and three, which makes me a first child. My husband is a baby. He's used to being told what to do. So, yeah, I have to be careful, though. Because <laughs> it just comes by nature. Go do this. <laughs> okay, hopefully he'll be back and we'll get it fixed. Okay, I, wh what I want you to do is just kind of grasp a little bit of what Put yourself in the shoes of these Israelites and what this thing looked like in the midst of where you are. Steve, they're saying it's muffled on that side, on that side of the room. I don't know. I don't know anything about all that. I'll just stand here and talk, and is that getting better? It's better. It's better. They said it's better. Okay. Thank you. I bet he did. <laughs> you didn't do anything? Okay, but it's better? Okay, well, it was just the emotional, it was just the suggestion of him coming in the room. Y'all just needed Steve here. Okay, okay. We're here to please you all. Okay. It didn't last? Is that better? You can move over here. Well, it is close. You think it needs, I don't, I can't. No, I don't like that one. No. Is that better? Is that better? I'll try to enunciate clearly, okay? All right. Back to my original question. 
tabernacle, there you are. You're one of the Israelites encamped around it, and it is there in your midst. Tell me what that would have been like. Yeah, the grandeur that he required, his holiness, wow. They would stand in awe of who he is, wouldn't they? What else? And they're so used to idol worship uh-huh. that it would be kind of a more like, natural thing for them to have it in there because it's like instead of an idol, they have this tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine how beautiful it was, especially if you were lucky enough to go inside, how beautiful this was? Now, something to understand is, is the, 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 you know, the regular Israelite didn't go in except as far as that bronze altar. That's as far as they went. Yes. Yeah, did y'all hear what she said? I I don't know if I can get all of it, but part of it was, um, the last part I got is the fact that it was portable, showed God's desire to be in their presence and to be with them. What was the first one? The precious material showed his greatness and his transcendence. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, let let me tell you a little bit about what went on there. So the priest, the people would come to offer their offering on the bronze altar, and it had horns so that you could tie the animal to it to to make the blood, the sacrifice, and offer it and, and burn it there. They didn't go any further. People didn't go any further than that. Beyond that is is the laver. The priests would go to the laver, and that's where they would wash before they could go into the holy place. And the priests were the only ones that went into the holy place. And really, if you were of, of the priestly tribe, you might only get to do that maybe if you were lucky once in your whole life. And they would go in there daily to tend the lamps to keep the incense burning because it continually burned, the lamps continually burned, to keep oil in the lamps, the the lampstand to keep it burning, and once a week to change out the bread on the table of showbread, the 12 loaves that were there to represent the 12 tribes. And then the high priest, which you might not ever get the privilege of being a high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies only once a year. And that's what you see in that bottom picture. I kind of mislabeled that. I said most holy place, holy of holies. But you've really got the holy place. And then you see the curtain. And then the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim over. 
And in this picture, there's like a flame or smoke coming up, which would signify God's presence. Because what did, when you read these verses, what did you learn about where God was? He, he was there in a cloud over the Ark of the Covenant. That's where his presence dwelt, was there. And so that high priest was able to go in there one time a year on the Day of Atonement, which we're going to look at in a minute. But the veil separated the people. So you not, you, you not only see kind of what um, June said is the fact that God wanted to dwell with his people in the portability of this tent and that it's right in the midst of them where all of them can see it because some of what he says is, I will be your God and you will be my people, but yet you also see the separation. Did you not read about the, and you, you put this veil up to separate you from my presence. Because if that high priest went in there without having taken an offering for his own sin and the sins of the people, he would be struck dead in that presence of God. So there's the nearness, but yet the separateness. Do you all see that? Questions, comments? Other thoughts you had as you read about this? Yeah, Glenda. Well, and not only the detail, I would add to that, the, the, the kind of the how-to. This is what you do. You know, that you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and this is how you do it, and this is the precise way that you do it. And plus, what you, what you look at in the old, it's not only specific in detail, it's very um, visual and physical and external. Did you all see that? All of this is, is visual, and it is still detailed. And it's external. They can see it. And they know what they're supposed to do. Exactly. That's a good observation, Glenda. Other thoughts? Because when Adam sinned, that separated. There was forever a separation. And at the moment he sinned, what has God been doing? Putting into action his plan of redemption to bring back that reconciliation so that he can have relationship and fellowship with his creation, with his people that he created. Yes, good observation. Other thoughts? Okay, let's move into that day of atonement. That once a year, that high priest could go in there once a year. It's in Leviticus 16. This is something that Leviticus 16 is a chapter you ought to be familiar with. You ought to understand what, what happened that day 
why it was such a solemn day for the people that happened every single year. Tell me some of the things that you observed as you read through Leviticus 16. Goats are cute, too. Have y'all seen them? Do y'all know Jill Brunker? They have goats. And in the spring, they have little little kid, the kids. They're called kids. Baby goats. They're so cute. They also have baby lambs. They're really cute, too. If you want an object lesson in what these sacrifices were like. So, so on the Day of Atonement, once a year, what happened? Besides, I mean, even up before the scapegoat. Quite a bit of time um, before he could go into the veil, before the mercy seat, um, where God appeared, he had to go through. What did he go through? Uh, um, washing. Look in verse four. He had to put on holy linen, linen undergarments, tie a linen sash around his waist, wear a linen turban. Had to bathe his body in water and then put him on. And he had to take from the congregation of the people the two male goats for the sin offering, the ram for the burn offering. Then he would offer a bull as a sin offering for himself to make atonement for his own sins and for his own house before he could go in into the presence. Then he would take the two goats, set them before the Lord at the entrance. Uh, and I just kind of feel sorry for the little goats. I'm a little bit PETA-ish. Um, and, and, Aaron, and Aaron cast lots on the goats so that one was, as Lynn said, sent out into the, the wilderness and then the other was presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. So these were the things that had to happen before he could go in. Um, and the people, here's what's interesting, is the people are standing, they're standing outside. They're outside the walls of the tabernacle while all this is happening. So it's a very solemn day. It is a reminder every year that I have sins that have to be covered because every year this event happened. And they wait almost in anticipation for Aaron or whoever the high priest was as the years go down to go in and be sure that this was accepted. You know, tradition says they had a rope tied to them in case they weren't accepted and God struck them dead, they could get them out of there. So that no one, because no one else could go in and get them or they would also die. And while he's in there, you, you read how the blood is being taken. It's been sprinkled here, and it's being sprinkled here, and it's being taken in, and it's being sprinkled on the mercy seat. And I'm sure a lot of you women that really like clean houses are wondering, who cleans that up? <laughs> I've never answered that question, <laughs> but I've often had it asked. But there's blood. Do you, do you get the idea of it? There's blood everywhere. It is everywhere blood that this is happening. Does anybody in here a hunter? No one's a hunter? You are? Really? You shot and killed little bambies? 
Huh? <laughs> Did you ever dress the animal? And, and there's a lot of blood in there. Lo it smells bad? Okay. So it smells really bad? You're a doctor. You've seen a lot of blood. Right? So blood everywhere, which is something we're going to talk about. Wasn't that a key word this week? Blood? Yeah. Blood. 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 There's a movie out with Daniel Day-Lewis. It was out several years ago called There Will Be Blood. Anybody see it? It's a really bloody movie. I can't say that I recommend it. But uh, it's kind of about gang uh, gangsters in the 30s. Very bloody movie. There will be blood. There was lots of blood in it. But anyway, you see, you see all the blood that was being sprinkled all over on this particular solemn day. And, and it was there, as in Leviticus, that he says, and I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So they did this every year, but why did they have to do it every year? What was it? This, this law that God gave, the law that was given was such grace and such mercy to the people so that he could have a relationship with his people. What was it not able to do? Okay, it, so what was wrong with it, or what it, I, wanna, I don't even want to say what was wrong. There was nothing wrong with the law. The law was exactly as God intended. That was not, those were not good choice words. But it could not, it, it only atoned sin, but did not remove. Okay, not permanent. If it's not permanent, it was what? It was only temporary until the time of Reformation. What else? The scripture tells us right here in your homework this week. What was it not able to do? Cleanse our conscience. Yes. Could not cleanse our conscience. What verse are you in? I can't hear you. What verse are you in? Oh, okay. In 10... Okay, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. Is that what you're saying, what you're asking? I just interpret that to mean it only dealt with that which was external. Does that make sense? I mean, when you think about the, the atone, that it atoned for sin, it covered, it covered the sin, but it didn't remove the sin. The blood covered it. So that there could be relationship, but it never removed it. Yeah, Diane. You did you have a comment? You yeah, look like you want to say that. something. Noah is righteous. Okay, so you need to 
obviously, one, no one is righteous. He's describing everyone standing before God. That's clear. So obviously the righteousness of Noah that is being described is Noah was a very righteous man. We need to use that. We're not talking about a righteousness that does not need God's grace or forgiveness. That's not what Genesis is talking about. Same with this. The cleansing that God would describe. I mean, imagine if, if Moses had to do something else. He would have to say, now listen, none of this is really doing anything because this is a clear shadow. But what's going to happen down the road is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will come, born of the Virgin Mary, and the Jews would have went, what? <laughs> so you have to read, I mean, Diane's asking a good question. You have to Cheers. understand that, the, that the, this is why the concept of progressive revelation is very critical. So when it's talking about Noah's righteousness or the cleansing that is taking place, there is something that is happening. Paul goes back and says, now listen, realize that if that meant the kind of cleansing that we would be perfectly cleansed, then there would be no need for more sacrifices. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. Mm -hmm. um, that's why they had to do it all the time. Because obviously, it didn't clean clean. It was like a temporary cleaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing cleansing. Yeah. And that's the part where reading it in its context and then understanding it in the scope of Scripture, mm -hmm. which Diane's question is really good, particularly in the book of Hebrews, mm -hmm. and in particularly chapter 9, which is going over and over and over again, the idea of, hey, if it really did take care of it, why did they have to keep doing it? Mm -hmm. And then he draws, as the, as the juxtaposition of that, how many times did Christ die for you? How many times did Jesus have to? Okay, so do you see the difference? And that's kind of what he's doing with this book, is he's showing the difference between the sanctification that Paul talks about in Romans, the work of Christ, Galatians, the work of Christ, and the kind of cleansing that happens in the book of Leviticus. Which one's ongoing, which one's repeatable, and then which one is perfect. And that's, in essence, what Diane is asking is the point that Hebrews is making. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, Diane, to answer your question? It is a good question. Yeah. You asked a good question, Diane, not a dumb question. <laughs> we'll give you another piece of candy later. <laughs> or a star. <laughs> that should encourage other people to ask questions. Yeah. So temporary could not cleanse our conscience. Anything else? What could it not do? Look what it says in um, verse 14. When it's speaking about what Christ did, it's giving us the opposite of, it, the, the flip side of that would be what the law cannot do. It, do, it doesn't cleanse the conscience. It also doesn't purify. It's saying it a little bit differently. It doesn't purify. It is only, look at that for, in verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling defiled person, persons with the ashes is a heifer, which if you want to read about the ashes of a heifer, it's in Numbers 19. Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Look what it, it, again, it was this external. It purified the flesh. It was an external cleansing. It was, I think, if I could sum what, what Jim was saying, it was a temporary cleansing. So it provided cleansing for the moment, but the minute you sinned, you were no longer cleansed anymore. And I think what we're going to see with Jesus is we're still cleansed. We are positionally always cleansed purified, justified, sanctified because of his once-for-all sacrifice. That's given away the whole rest of the chapter and next week's lesson 
all in one sentence. Other thoughts, other questions before we move on? That is a good point. The animals, well, number one, they're innocent. They didn't do anything wrong. And yet they're the one that's having to be killed and their blood sp spilled for my sin. And what was the other comment you just said? They, they weren't willing no. sacrifices, but Jesus was a willing innocent Yeah, they were not a willing sacrifice. They had no choice in the matter. They were just chosen and taken and cut and bled and put up there. And I think that shows you the awfulness of our sin, that this innocent animal had to die on our behalf. And, and the fact that there's so much blood everywhere, which we're going to talk a little bit more about in a minute. Yes. Okay. I had another thought, and I've lost it. Sorry. Oh, I know what it was. And it's kind of um, reemphasizing this could not cleanse our conscience and the fact that it only atoned but did not remove. The old covenant couldn't change us within. What did you all learn last week? When you looked at the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 30, 31, what did you learn? Do you remember? This is something you should absolutely know. It is written on our hearts because where was the law written? On tablets of stone, it was external. Everything's external. The law is external. These sacrifices are external. They're temporary. They provided a temporary cleansing, but they could, that did not change within. So big flaw in this system did not change hearts within. But it served its purpose. It was part of a 2,000-year plan that God instituted and that he wanted, and we'll see this in more detail next week, so that we would understand what we have in Jesus Christ. This is why I say to you, you really don't understand what you have in Christ so you understand all this. So you go back and look at this, and then you see what he accomplished on the cross the offering of his body and the shedding of his innocent, perfect, unblemished blood. And what the new covenant accomplished in writing the law, it all became internal. Writing the law, the law, the moral part of the law hasn't gone away. It's now inside, empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that we can obey what God has asked us to do. It was, very, it was very impersonal. And again, that, that I would just really highlight that word, is it in uh, Exodus? When you're reading about the veil and it says separate, the veil shall separate you. They're separated. They have a system that allows them to have relationship with God. 
but yet there's still a distance. There's still a mediate, there's still someone going on their behalf, a priest who has his own sin, who has his own weaknesses. Yeah, does that make sense? Diane, did you have another comment? I said they don't really have to do a thing. Jennifer yeah. said, well, do they have to confess their sin? They got put on the spokeboard. Yeah. There was a general understanding, we'll, and we'll get a little bit more of this next week, that when they brought that sacrifice up to the bronze altar to offer it, that in, in placing their hand on it, they're, they're, they're identifying, putting their sin on the head of this innocent animal in their place, and that there is um, the understood concept of repentance in doing that. It wasn't just a ritual oh, okay, I do this, my sin is forgiven, there was still implied that I, in doing this, I am confessing my sin, I am repentant of what I have done, and now I, this sacrifice is being made on my behalf so that I might be cleansed and my sin atoned for. Does that make sense? It, I'll just preempt a little bit next week. Next week we're going to look at a quote about sacrifices and offerings I have not desired and I have taken no pleasure in them. And those of you all that did the prophets will remember we kept seeing that over and over and over again because what were the people doing? They were going through the motions but still living a life in complete defiance and disobedience to God but yet showing up with their sacrifice and offering like that was going to take care of it. Does that make sense? So there was still the the the... the in play here was my heart needs to be with this. Jim, you look like you well, need I to say something. The answer to their heart question, what, what, did, what did people A and person A have to do? The, answer, the only answer I'm comfortable with now is whatever God told me. Mm-hmm. We, want to, we are this crazy reductionistic people. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it, I think the Bible doesn't afford us that. We, we love to find reasons. We love to reduce it down. Oh, that's my favorite course we've ever done because I think it really helps you understand all of this because we started out at the beginning, went all the way through, and unpacked how they all relate to each other. But I like what you said. It, both of these are a gift from God. Both are followed by faith. 
And I think that's where we, we get confused. We don't understand that this was also by faith. That's what Romans tells us. That's what covenant tells us. What does Romans say in, in chapter 4? Abraham, by faith, was declared righteous, even before the law. It's always been by faith. Paul develops that in Galatians as well. It's by faith. It's by faith. It's always been by faith. Let me point you back to Abraham. Long before the law ever came, it was by faith. Under the law, it was by faith. We get confused because we think the law is just do, 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 do. And they did have a lot to do, but it was still by faith. By faith, they're still putting their hand on that animal and offering that sacrifice. And by faith, believing that God's going to, for the moment, atone for the sin and cleanse them. Right? Am I right? And to not do that is rebellion against God. Yeah. To not put the hand on the animal, Yeah. Or to do that, and, and you have no heart, and, and your heart is not even repentant for what you're doing. I'm just going to go through this motion that's going to take care of it, but I'm going to walk right out of here and keep doing what I was doing, is an act of rebellion. And that's what they were doing. That's what all the prophets are rebuking them for. Yes, ma'am. then that's not repentance. Guilt is not repentance. Yeah. Yeah. It, then and now both, it kind of goes back to what Jim and I were just saying. Then and now both, it's by faith. Then and now both, it's repentance. It's choosing, it's, it's walking away from it. Okay, that, we're rabbit chasing a little bit, and we're going to run out of time. So in the new, we make a turn here as he's unpacked all this, and he says, but... But in verse 11, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the things to come, he went through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. This was all just a pattern of what was in the heavenly. He entered how many times? Once for all where? Once for all into the perfect tent, the real thing, the holy place, into the presence of God, and what did he do? How did he get there? What did he take with him? What does it say in verse 12? Just read the scripture. He did it once for all by his own blood, What's the difference of, uh, between his blood and the animal's blood? Jennifer brought one thing up right over here. What's the difference? His was what? It was a willing. It was a voluntary, willing sacrifice that he gave his blood. What else is different about his blood versus the blood of the animal's? It was perfect. His blood is perfect. And because it was his blood, the incarnate Christ who died 
and offered his body, what was his blood able to do? Look right there in 12, underline it. What was his blood able to do? What did it secure? Okay, his blood secured eternal redemption. Redemption is a good biblical doctrinal word you should be able to, to define off the top of your head. What is, does anybody know? What does it mean to redeem? To buy back. To pay a costly price to buy, to pay a ransom to buy back because he's ransoming, he's, he's buying us out of the slavery of sin. Romans, we are slaves to sin and his precious blood is the ransom payment, the satisfaction that satisfies God's wrath, again, Romans, so that then we have eternal redemption with the Father and perfect relationship with the Father because of the blood that he shed for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we also have an eternal inheritance. What else do we have? Go back up to 14, what do we have? Because he offered himself without blemish to God that they did not have over here. We have a mediator and we have a purified conscience. Where these, the sacrifices under the old could never cleanse the conscience. There was always the reminder of sin It was always the feeling of guilt because of their sin. Here we have a once-for-all perfect sacrifice that gives us eternal redemption and a purified conscience free from guilt of our sin. Anything else you all want to add to that? Oh, he did. Well, if you just, it, it does, and if you just kind of, I, I like what you said, Norma, if you just think about all of this and everything we've seen in Hebrews, and especially this week, and then I'm going to preempt a little bit and go into next week. If you go into next week, if you go into chapter 10, when he's talking about sacrifices and offerings, I've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. This is, this is Christ speaking through the words of the psalmist. In verse 7, then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. 
And then again in verse 9, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And what motivated him to do it? This is, the God, this is God. Christ is God. It's his love. It's a perfect message for Valentine's Day. It's a perfect thing to go home and meditate on all day on this day. It is a covenant of love. It is God and the Godhead together before the foundation of the world, getting together and deciding when man sins, we're going to do this because we love them and we want relationship and fellowship. Not that we need it, but we want it, relationship. Okay? We've got, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's really sad. Okay, I want to, I want to in our five minutes, I want to go back to the blood which is not a very palatable thing to think about. I know it makes some people squeamish. It goes against kind of our mindset and our culture, this whole idea of taking these animals and cutting them open and spilling blood and doing this on a daily basis, every day of the year, all year round, thousands of years. Um, Not exactly the culture that we've grown up in. There was a lot of blood spilled for cleansing from sin over all these um, centuries. And that's something really to think about. Um, you know, blood, blood's not, I like what June said, it smells bad. Um, it's not really a sight we want to think about, but why is the blood so important? You looked at Leviticus, why blood? Why did God require blood? Did you, hmm? Okay, the blood is, it, the, there's life in the blood. It's where there is life, is in the blood. You drain the blood out of my body and I will not be living. Because you cannot live without blood. The life is in the blood, he says. But why else? What did you learn? If you you mark that on your observation worksheet, there's just blood, 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 blood everywhere. So what else did you learn about blood? Okay, well, one, this covenant is not going to go into effect. And by the way, when it says will, that's the same Greek word for covenant. So the will didn't go into effect. We went to a funeral this weekend. My, my um, husband's sister-in-law died very suddenly, very unexpectedly, and the memorial service was in Lubbock Saturday. So we were there with, with my brother-in-law, and very sad. They've been married 40 years, and he, they really, really loved each other. Um, but he, um, you know, we we're talking afterwards and kind of, you know, when does he go back to work and, you know, what's he going to do now? And, and he has a lot of business things to take care of. She, she had money of her own, and, and there's the will, and Vance, who is um, also an attorney, was kind of giving him some legal advice and things. But, but there's a perfect object lesson is that will didn't take effect till she died. He can't, he, until he can produce that death certificate showing, yes, she's dead, he cannot have access to the assets that she had, even the ones that were in joint tenancy. So that's what he's saying. Until there is a death, the, the, the will does not come into place. Until there is a death, until there is the shedding of Christ's blood, there is no inauguration of the covenant. In fact, he even says, even the old covenant was not inaugurated without blood. You looked at a question about that, and you went back to Exodus. When they came out of the wilderness and God gave the law, there were animals slaughtered, the altar was sprinkled with blood, the people pledged their obedience. Yes, we will do all that God has said, and then they are sprinkled with blood. Again, this is a messy picture if you really think about it. Here's all these people, and they're getting blood. I don't, I'm glad we're not having to do that. 
So what else did you learn about blood? Okay, blood is, it's, okay, it's cleansing. I heard something over here. I heard something over here. Yeah. Okay. No forgiveness without blood. What else? Without blood, there's no inauguration of a covenant. Without blood, there's no cleansing. Without blood, there's no purification. There's no purification of our conscience. Without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's just, if you, if you look at, there's just, there's blood. Blood everywhere. There's blood put on here. There's the blood of the animals. There's blood to cleanse the conscience. What does Jesus do? Once for all, blood. He takes, you know, symbolically into the holy place. It's by his own blood, his voluntary sacrifice. And it's only by blood that all of these things, eternal redemption, eternal inheritance, a purified conscience, eternal life, without the blood, there's, there's none of this. Are y'all kind of getting a picture now? Is it making you queasy? The immense amount of blood that is shed? And then by all these animals, and then because of Jesus' one perfect sacrifice of a blood sacrifice, we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. I mean, it started out with blood. Started, it started with blood when Adam and Eve sinned. When they went and hid and tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, what did God do? He killed an animal to provide skins for them. It's always been. The life is in the blood, and the blood has to be shed. And that goes against our modern-day senses, and that may be some of why we have to sit and meditate with it a little bit. We're removed, unless you're a doctor or you're a hunter. We just kind of never encounter it. Yes, Norma? Of the blood. Yeah, we still do, but do we really think about it? Do you know what I'm saying? Do we really, really think about this little cup of grape juice? Or if you go to the Presbyterian church, you get real wine. Uh, <laughs> hey, at Frontline in Oklahoma City, you get a whole Dixie cup this tall of either uh, white grape juice or red wine. And let me tell you, there's no place to put that cup. You are committed to the whole thing. <laughs> and they have you get it and go back to your seat. So if you don't want a whole cup of wine or a whole cup of grape juice, you just got to drink it anyway. And they fill the cup right up to the top. You almost have to be careful not spilling it getting back to your seat. It's, it's, they want to be sure when you eat that little piece of cracker or whatever, you really have something to wash it down. So it's really interesting. It's the first time we went there with our kids. We're just like, what do we do with this? I don't want that much. We got to drink it. <laughs> no, no. 
No, when you leave, they'll have trash cans, little ones, little bitty trash can, for a thousand people to put their little cup in. So they intend for you to drink that whole cup. There's no big, yeah, there's no place to pour it. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. So anyway, if you, uh, let me just sum up, because then I want to read something to you. It, all of this blood, here's what you should come away with. All of this blood really shows you the seriousness of our sin, and that sin alienates us from God. It is rooted in our hearts, and it leads to death. That's what it shows. And why, why this perpetual sea of blood over here for 2,000 years? It was to teach us that our sin demanded blood. It demanded it. And when you understand that and you begin to sit with it and meditate on it, then you go, you want to bow before him and really praise him and thank him for what you have. And did you read the words of this song I gave you? Did you read them? This is my current, my current favorite song right here. Before the throne of God. It fits so perfectly. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love who lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. I love that. Okay, we need to break. We've gone over time. If you want to see this, I'll, I'll, I'll have to describe it to you because you can't really recognize it. This is how you uh, get something from your dad, okay? It says on the very top, spelling, by the way, misspelling things helps when you're a kid, okay? Because they go, look at that. He's so not intelligent, but he's trying, okay? Daddy, will you please buy, and I, spe- I spelled buy right this time. Will you please buy me the bike? Because cars do not come around here to, should have two O's, my apologies, too much. And I promise I will take care of it. I promise I will. Say promise a lot. By the way, that's how you get your dad to do things for you. Um, This is me if I get the bike. Curly-headed kid with a smiley face. This is me if I don't get the bike curly-headed kid with a frown. Page two. And I will pay $32 myself. So please will you buy, now it's just B-Y, forgot the U in this one. Interesting, I'll give you $32, will you please buy me, I remember, I think the bike was $32. I'll pay for it, will you please buy me the bike? I guess because any money that I would have when I was nine years old would have had to have come from him anyway. Um, Will you please buy me the bike, and I promise, double and triple, okay, not just one promise, this is a double and a triple promise, that I will be so, 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 so careful. So please buy me the bike. 
okay? Then, because I'm a contractual child, circle. Look, here's how I spelled circle. C-R-C. <laughs> David Swank would have liked that. C-R-C-U-L-E. Again, my apologies. Uh, it's the Canadian education system. Circle the word and write it in the blank. It's like I'm a professor already, right? Circle the word and write it in the blank. May Jimmy Johnson have the bike. And then there's a space for my dad. And then I've got on the bottom, yes, dot, 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 no, dot, 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 maybe. <laughs> and this is how I did, by the way, get the bike. This is how you get the bike. Okay. This is how you do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Um, it's, it's honestly how I've learned to get things my entire life. I want you to think about that. How do you get things? Here's how I get things. Um, I, I, I carefully explain the benefits. I'm, I'm, I'm going to love the bike. This is me. Look at me. This is me if I get the bike. And do you love me? This is me if I get the bike. And this is me if I don't get the bike. Okay? Um, I promise, not, not just once, and not just twice, I triple promise that I'll be careful. Um, we, we, we argue, like, I'll, I'll give some of the money. I'll pay for some of it myself. This is how we try to win over. And I, and I just, when I was nine years old, that just seemed like the most logical, foolproof way to win my father's, not just affection, but to kind of move his hand so that I can get a bike. And I just can't help but think now, now, now truly, not just knowing my dad, but now knowing what it's like to be a dad. How absolutely sweet and cute. Um, I've, I've shown that to a couple of people today because knowing I was going to use it for this. And, uh, and they said, you've got to keep that. And I'm like, duh. <laughs> yeah, I'm keeping it. I mean, I've kept it since, I think I wrote this in July. I think my mom wrote it on the back. Yeah, July 19, my dad did, that's my dad's writing. July 1977 is when I wrote it. So summer of 77. Um, which is kind of sad that I still didn't know how to spell very well when I was like nine years old. But that's a whole other story. Um, here's, the, here's the piece, though, that I want you to see, is that this is kind of how we, we bring a lot of those same things, do we not, with God, when we try to win him over. Um, have you ever tried this with God? Please, please, please. Have you ever done the double, triple promise thing with God? Okay, I, I mean, I'll just honestly, I have. I've done the double, triple promise. Um, I've tried to explain to him, hey, listen, like, here's why you getting me the bike is a good idea, because it's, it's, it's safer than you think, God. I promise, there's not a lot of cars around here. Like, I need to inform God whether or not. We, 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 we do, this is kind of how we do it. This, by the way, kind of going out of the sermon I preached last Sunday, like, that's what religion does, doesn't it? That's religion. Religion, I'll pay $32. I double, triple promise. This is, this is, this is a religious expression. Um, arguing with God and arguing the merits of something with God so that somehow we might uh, either, either twist his arm or, um, and I think I probably even knew this at nine years old, if I can just be really, really cute, if I can just be really, really sincere and let him know, and I, I, I know you won't believe this, but one of the things I did as a kid a lot was show extreme happiness or extreme sadness to let my parents know kind of how things were going in my life. 
And my mom, more than my dad, <laughs> really wanted me to be happy. Okay? So I didn't like going to the dentist. Hated going to the dentist. Was just scared, so, so afraid of the dentist. I was so terrified of going to the dentist. My mom would literally say, like, I'll take you shopping and buy you lots of things as long as you're not scared to go to the dentist. I'm like, oh, okay, I can do that. All the way up to grade 12, literally. I'm not kidding. I am like a, virtually a grown man, and I'm still spending the half of the day shopping, buying things, still scared to death inside, but I'm not letting my mom know, right? This is how we operate. And what we actually see in the book of Hebrews is a completely different way of doing it. A completely different way of doing it. And actually, what's interesting is I want to I say what the book of Hebrews does, I thought Nancy really brought this up this morning, is that there is not just a discontinuity between the Old and New Testament, that which is a shadow and that which is a reality, but there's actually a strong correlation. Right? There's a correlation between this. Blood has always mattered to God. You realize that God wanted to flood the world. you know why God flooded the world? It was because the, the ground was crying out because of the injustice of murder and blood. Cain kills Abel, and the, the ground cries out to him. His blood cries out to him. Did you know that the, uh, one of the, one of the way, reasons why that the land decided to throw uh, the Israelites up out of it, the way it's described, is because of the injustice, particularly the injustice of the shedding of innocent blood, of the prophets and the poor, so there really seems to be, a, this, this blood issue is like a really, really big deal in the Bible. And so I want you to think about it, and this is kind of the, the correlating similarities, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here. We're going to spend all our time in the New Testament looking at blood, not going back and looking at the Old, okay? But it's interesting, um, like I, don't, I wasn't smart enough at nine years old to appeal to my father's goodness. I was going to appeal to, like, my state. Um... This, what, I, what I love about the book of Hebrews, what I love about what the New Testament teaches is that it's probably not best for us to appeal in the ways that we do here. This is really childish, right? When you're nine, I guess it's the only way to be. I'm, I am a typical fifth born. I got one, I got one baby. I'm a, I'm, the, I'm a half baby. My sister's the baby baby. But yeah, it's close. It's close. Which one? The youngest? Yeah. Two. So there's, but there's, I am, you're right. I mean, I'm kind of a half baby. So yeah. Oh yeah. Pull on the heartstrings. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Oh wow. So we look at we look at when we're looking at the New Testament. What I want us to see. So let's let's spend one final word in the Old Testament, and that's this: the Jewish people had to slay an animal and then give that animal to God. It's life. It's life blood. We give that to God, and then they had to believe by faith that the slaying of this animal would cover their sin problem. That's what they had to trust that God would accept substitutionally, this animal for themselves. Okay, that's, that, that, that's why Paul makes it very, very clear. It's always been by faith. 
The idea of substitutionary atonement is actually like a biblical, not just a New Testament biblical, but a biblical idea. God takes the goat instead of you. God takes the sheep instead of us. We are, in, in essence, our, our sins are covered over, atoned for, and they had to trust that that would happen, okay? But what we actually see in the New Testament is, and this is kind of what I want to th- think through this morning, is just how important the blood of Christ is, is brought up and is mentioned. So I want us just to, to run through. The first thing I want to point out is that if you take a look at how the word blood is used in the New Testament, it is used 91 times in the New Testament, the word blood. Okay? 91. The book of Hebrews, 21. Okay? So no, no other book really comes close. 91 in the New Testament, 21 in the book of Hebrews. Are you ready for this? 11 in Hebrews 9. So little more than one out of every nine occurrences in the entire New Testament are in this one chapter of the idea of blood. Okay? So what I would like for us to do is take a look at, I mean, we're doing more of a concordance study, which is one of my favorite things to do. I want to I walk through and see how the blood of Jesus is talked about by himself and his followers. Um, probably if, when you think of the blood of Christ, one of the first chapters you should think of is actually John 6. So turn to John 6 and take a look and see how John, the gospel writer, finishes out the story of the feeding of the 5,000. None of the other ones have, none of the other gospel writers use the Sermon on the Bread of Life. This is, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to kind of be reading verses 53 through 56, because it's where that word blood is concentrated in John's gospel. It's, it's, the, the whole idea is brought about from verse 52. Jesus is talking about, I want you to, to eat of my flesh and to drink of my blood. That's why this, the, 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 the bread, Jesus being the bread of life, is not so much a communion message, although it has communion implications, He's really not talking about communion. He's talking about something much deeper than that. Verse 52, the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, interestingly enough, Jesus said to them in a way that is more confusing than helpful. Okay? He doesn't go, oh, but by the way, let me explain this. Yeah, obviously I can't give you my flesh to eat. No, he just, he goes in deeper. Okay, so for those of us that always think what Jesus wanted to do was take the deep and the complicated and to make it simple, I have no idea what book you're reading. Okay? I think Jesus, hear me, is patient and kind and loving and all of those things, but look, look at his answer. How can he give us his flesh to eat? Look at his response. Truly, truly, or verily, verily, or literally in the Greek, it's amen, amen. Amen, amen. We used to have to say when we were translating it, Heavy thing, heavy thing, okay? Meaning, that's what the word amen means. It means, I'm about to say something really big. I'm about to say something really big, okay? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. So there, (laughs) notice the question. Okay, how is this guy going to give us his flesh? Jesus, let me explain. If you don't, you're going to die. Okay, that doesn't explain how. 
In essence, he kind of takes it one step further and notices, this is where he starts talking about, and drink my blood. You have no life in me. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Okay? That's what he's describing. Now, interestingly enough, I would say he is, for the most part, if you were to ask me what is he describing here, I, I know we quickly go to communion. I don't, I don't really think that's what he is referencing here. Okay, um, I, I think there is a, a communion overlap that we bring into it, but I really think what he is describing here of feasting and eating and drinking on him is his teaching, which is a direct relation of him. But I also don't know how you can't read that chapter and not think about the communion aspects of it. Okay? The blood of the covenant. Um, the body which was broken. So there is a little bit. I think, I think both are actually happening. Both are actually happening. But Jesus is describing um, this connection to him. And the word, uh, the word that is used to describe eat is the word troge in the Greek which means to voraciously, it's, it's a starving person eating. Not, it's, not a, it's not a snack. It's like somebody who is just, like, almost just famished. And, and that's, that's how we eat of him. That's how we partake of him. Going back to the idea that, you know, this, this, this whole thing, what's, what's broken with this whole letter, is this whole letter is about me. And what I love about Christianity you know, dear God, will you please let me come to heaven? Will you please give me eternal life? I promise that I'll be really good. This is me if you let me come into heaven. I'll put a smile on my face. This is me if I don't, <laughs> you know? And I promise that I'll be, you know, this is... But what, what, the, what Jesus is asking us to do here in John 6 is to, like, take part of me. Take part in me. Eat and drink of me. Like, follow me. And that's what the Hebrew writer is getting at in Hebrews chapter 9. That what we actually have in Christ is the vehicle through which, okay, so the, this whole section is describing Jesus as the mediator between us and God. He is the one, the, the means by which, okay? And his blood is, in essence, the means by which. There was a famous controversy that happened when the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, decided to get rid of some of the blood of the Bible, and it was known as the bloodless Bible. And, and people were so upset about this. They couldn't believe it. Why are you removing the blood from the Bible? Interestingly enough, um, they weren't really removing blood from the Bible. They decided to translate the word, which is usually translated, um, um, it, well, it should be translated death. It was often translated blood. And they decided to go back and to theologically talk more that it was about his death that accomplished it than just his blood. And I remember Brother Wilson at the college helping us think through this and just saying, listen, like, I know we keep saying blood, we keep saying blood, but Jesus couldn't just show up at, like, uh, the Red Cross and give his blood. <laughs> like, even when we're talking about the blood of Christ, think about this, we're not just talking about the blood of Christ, we're really talking about his what? Even in the, even in the Bible, it's described as what? What is, what is closely associated with the blood is, is what? Death. Can't escape it. 
And I remember Brother Wilson saying, listen, like, whether you like it or not, I'm actually okay with death sometimes. You know, if that's what you're really trying to get at, there's actually something theologically right about that. That blood is a sign both of life and the shedding of blood is, in essence, the issue of death. And, and we'll talk about how that, how that feeds into um, uh, to this, particular, this particular text. So here, let, me give you, let me give you another great scripture that, come, that deals with the blood. Just turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. This is a great, 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 great section. We know Romans 3.23, but I love how it continues on to 24 and 25. Well, I'm going to begin at verse 22, and we'll go down to 25. And notice what, what is happening here. 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is what the prophet spoke about. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's a gift that is given to us through Christ Jesus, but verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. So sometimes we talk about, do you remember the word propitiate? Okay? It's not expiate. The word expiate describes more of like uh, that the penalty has been paid. Okay? That's kind of the, uh, there's a big debate whether or not the word here, histilomy in the Greek, should be the idea of propitiate or expiate. And I like propitiate. To expiate is that the penalty is paid for. Okay? What a lot, of, uh, a lot of people in probably the last 20 years, although it's, it's got, it keep, keeps coming back, what people don't like is that God um, is angry with rebellious people. That is not a popular idea, that God is in fact angry. The idea of propitiation is that God is in fact angry. There is a wrath that is coming from Him on those who are rebellious. And a lot of people say, listen, but if we tell people that, they're not going to like him. And so we really need like a softer version of him, like a, 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 a loving, a more, a more quiet, a more peaceful version. Can't we have a more peaceful version of him? And actually the word means to, to, to kind of assuade or to, to help, to, to soften, but not to soften in a kind of chill out and relax, but truly to appease. And so how is God's, Anger towards us, us, how is that subsided? And the answer is through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the death of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you just stop and think about that, that all that I have done wrong does bring about, first of all, it's good for you to remember, brings about the full wrath of God, justifiably. We deserve His wrath. Do you know that? For what we have done against Him, we deserve that. And yet there isn't that. What is the change? What is His, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, what is His posture towards us? And His posture towards us is one of covenantal peace. And what is it that did that? And it really is His blood. That's why I love to ask the question, how are you saved? 
and I love the idea. I don't even, I don't want to be reductionistic. I love for us to think about a number of things. What I find very interesting is when I ask people that, how are, how are we saved? Um, the first response, I don't want to read too much into it, but the first response can be telling. And when I love to, have, one of the reasons I love to ask that question is because most people, when we talk about it, describe by faith, or they love to talk about, we don't have to do anything. And I'm going, okay. First of all, I don't want to argue that yet. Um, did anything have to be done for us? Oh, yeah, 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 like, uh, like Jesus dying, you know, that stuff. We often talk about it and we jump all the way down to how we receive it, which is true by faith, which is true, it's grace. Okay, I'm all for that. Man, aren't you grateful for the grace of God? So tell me about the grace of God. Well, okay, it looks like this, actually. God put on flesh and then dwelt among us and lived a sinless life and then, and then died. And then he who did not know sin became sin. And through his death, we have peace. Oh, yeah, that's a little more. That's, so that's what you mean by grace? And we throw around the grace of God instead of recognizing that what we are actually talking about is the, the murdering of, of God in the second part of the Trinity, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was a propitiation for our sins. So I love that reminder. How are we propitiated? By his blood. And then notice it continues on. Listen, I love the idea. To be received by faith. And then I'll just, I, I got to read this next section because it's so critical. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And then he goes on to say, so that he could show everything now. That's what Nancy was driving at. That God didn't pay for their sins with the blood of bulls and goats, the Hebrew writer says. That what God did was he covered over it. He looked over it. Because why? Because God is looking forward to what Jesus Christ is going to do. And that's why the New Testament writer celebrated the fact, wow, we got to see how and why God used to overlook sin. Why God didn't kill everybody. We have now seen that because it is what Jesus Christ officially accomplished. Go ahead a couple of chapters to chapter Romans chapter 5 and kind of see how this next section describes him or describes the blood of Christ. Romans 5 verse 9. And, and notice how this goes back to the propitiating aspect of, 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 uh, of the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and by the way, one of the things that I just kept thinking about, and I don't know if this is you, um, one of the wars I like to wage, okay, is finding those people who cannot believe that God would forgive them, that cannot, they cannot let go of their sin. They want to hang on to it, okay, for tons of different reasons. I, I think, you know, part of it is mommy and daddy issues, and part of it is just, you know, the, the degree of brokenness, and part of it is how poorly we talk about God and how poorly we talk about um, I, I believe that these texts do as good a job as can be humanly done to try to explain why and how forgiveness is true and real. Okay? So notice what he says. For, uh, for, those, if, for, for you or if you know someone that wrestles with, I don't know why God would forgive me, take a look at 5.9. By the way, 5.8 is huge. God shows his love for us. You know this verse. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's his love. 
Beautiful attribute. Look at verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. We have been made right before God by his blood through faith. Okay? So how are we justified? Everybody goes, by faith. Okay. Want to add anything else? Because, again, all you're talking about is our side of it, how to receive it. That's, is that not, tell me I'm crazy. Is that not usually almost all we talk about? How do I get it? 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 Without, without Jesus, without his death, without his blood. So notice this. We are justified by his blood. And then look, notice this. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Going back to the propitiation. So if we have been saved by him, if we have been justified by his blood, then he has truly rescued us from God's wrath. And that answers how God sees us. So when someone says, I do not believe that God has forgiven me, the only thing I know how to talk about is, so you have or haven't heard about Jesus dying on the cross? Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Okay, why did he die on the cross? I mean, walk him through it. Why did he die on the cross? Well, you know, so that, no, why did he walk on the, well, you know, for for me, because he loved me. No, no, no. Think through this. Why did he die? He died because it was God's plan. We very seldom talk about that. We just, almost like Jesus walking around and all of a sudden a bunch of Jews capture him. No, Jesus is on his way to the cross. He is there to obey the Father's will. For what? That the Father would be glorified by him And we'll see where this ends up in New Testament theology because Jesus is going to make himself a people through his blood. This is why he's doing this. So, again, I know I'm not asking you why you... I get why you feel really bad about those bad things that you've done. I would even say a part of that is always going to be a good thing. By the way, you can disagree with me on this. I think hopefully there's room in Christ. Um, there are certain things that I've done in my life I don't think I should ever be happy of or proud of. I think I'll always have a sense of shame. I just have no guilt. Does that make sense? And maybe shame isn't the right word, but there are certain things, certain things that I've done, I, sh- I should never just be able to just, oh yeah, I'm no, totally cool with that, you know, the way I treated girls in high school. Totally cool with that idea. I want you to know the blood of Jesus totally made me cool with that. No, like, that was just not right. And the way that I wanted to have girlfriends so I could feel better about myself, and I really didn't really care, like, what they did, and I kind of just moved around. Like, I mean, I, I, if you're worried that I was somehow sexually exploitive, no, I wasn't that. I just messed with their hearts. I didn't, you know, hurt them physically. I didn't exploit them sexually. I just, I just treated them for my personal, um, you know, self-appreciation. You know, I don't think it's too bad. When you think about just how broken we are, how much Jesus Christ comes and says, listen, so you're an object of wrath, and this is what I'm now doing for you. This is now how I'm now bringing you to this particular place, and I'm telling you, you are forgiven. And what I did was terrible. Sure it was. It was was actually worse than you know. Like you never even saw, you, you know that, right? You've never seen the full extent of what your sin has done to others. Do you know that? You, you only know a small, tiny little piece of what your brokenness has caused in those around you. And by the way, it's still, by the blood of Christ, covered. 
It's okay. You can breathe. Jesus has taken care of fully the wrath of God. And that's why when he comes, I eagerly await the day that I have no fear because I know what it is to fear. Right? From last week. Okay. Let's, uh, that's, that's a great text. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is right around, by the way, some communion talk, which is interesting, chapters 10 and stuff. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Look at verse 25. In the, in the middle of the Lord's Supper section, and this is where we actually see maybe some of the John 6, maybe Jesus was alluding to, um, not just his teaching, but his life. If you remember, the cup that he picks up, most likely during the uh, Lord's Supper, is the third cup, which is the cup of redemption the cup that the blood was put on the posts. And so Jesus then aligns himself. I am, it is my blood that covers over you. So that's kind of what he's is referring to here. And in the same way, this is Paul describing Jesus. In the same way, he also took the cup, the third cup, the cup of redemption. And after supper, he said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, in my death. I love both of those ideas carrying with it. Of my blood, of my death, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He goes on, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, I come from a tradition that loves to celebrate the fact that we do things like they did in the New Testament. Amen, Alexander Campbell. Amen, Burton W. Stone. Amen. Okay. Um, and we have made that a big deal. And I have made that a big deal. Um, the older I get, the more I even like texts like this that say, you know why, you know why? I, I, I now tell people, sure, I guess there's a tradition element to our weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, but it's more than that. I now see a, uh, a just a more than just following the pattern of the New Testament. Because, by the way, there are lots of things that they did in the New Testament that we don't get as excited about. Okay? So we kind of pick and choose the things that we get excited about. This one is a good one that I'm glad we got excited about. Like, you know why we come together every Sunday? Because Jesus died for us. And what, what holds us together, sister and brother in Christ, what holds us together? Is it the fact that we're both Americans? I'm not. Is it the fact that we're both of the same gender? No, we're not. Is it because they have all the same interests? No, we don't. So what is it? It's the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ in which unites us. It's the blood of Christ that we can enter into the throne of God. It's the blood of Christ that makes worship. Um, like God receives our worship through our songs. How? It's the blood of Christ. Think about it. Like there's no other way by which God receives these things. But it's through the blood of Christ. Without it, it's, it's, it's empty and it's vain. And that's why it's interesting that the Apostle Paul talks about this blood, and especially in 1 Corinthians 11, as this uniting. What, what Paul hates in, in 1 Corinthians is divisiveness, separation that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ. 
He considers that to be evil. Why? Because it is his blood that unites us. Therefore, there should be no divisiveness, right? To be divisive is to truly be ungodly. And what unites us? It's the blood of Jesus. We're going to have to move a little quicker. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It's funny how much we don't finish the sentence. But in 7, he makes it clear. In him we have redemption. But he, he says how? In him we have redemption through what? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. How we usually say it is, we have redemption through his grace. I, 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 that's not wrong. But the Apostle Paul seems to point to a specific part of Christ's life. And we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to his riches of grace. So, um, that becomes a key component. And the other one that I love is also found in Ephesians chapter 2. This is a great text that reminds me one of my favorite verses I love Ephesians 2 is probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible uh, verse 13 but now in and he's talking he's, he's trying to bring together two groups of people that hate each other Jews and Gentiles okay there's that conflict and and his answer this is why the answer to racism the answer to sexism is not an enlightened opinion of one another. It'll never work. Then they'll always be at war. I'm better than you. You know that, right? Because I'm this or you're that. It'll never work. It'll never work. The only thing that works, I believe this, is Christ. Because in Him, there can be no boasting. In Him, there can be no pride. In Him, there can be no arrogance. Right? He's kicking it out of us all the time. Look at this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay? So he's, he's reminding us it is a sacrifice that has brought us near. Verse 14, he's going to continue. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one flesh and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, which is interesting, through the cross, killing hostility. The cross kills hostility. Why? Because it makes peace with God. And it's kind of like, okay, Diane, I know you got a problem with me, or i got a problem with you, or we both have a problem with each other. Now, I want us, as we work through this, to remember Christ died for us, you and me. You ready to do this? Okay. It's just really hard to hang on to stuff, isn't it? Really hard to hang on. So what are we hanging on to? Um, man, it just seems so petty. It seems so small. And this is the Apostle Paul's. This is why um, in the last few weeks I've been making a big deal. Of this. I can't do it forever, but maybe I should do it forever. The answer is, who's the answer? The answer is Jesus. He's the answer for everything. And thinking through that, it is his death on the cross 
that then kills the hostility between us and God. And if there's no hostility between us and God, man, I don't know if I want to have hostility with a brother or sister in Christ if there's no hostility between me and them and God. And that's what the Apostle Paul, and that is all through the blood of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Talking about Jesus in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, so in Jesus, the fullness of God existed in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Very interesting phrase. The blood of his cross. (laughs) How much blood did the cross have? Kind of, it's kind of a, it's a weird statement, actually. It's the only time it's actually described it. You, you probably even missed it. There really isn't the blood from the cross. It's actually the blood from his body. But here, the cross symbolizes his death, doesn't it? So those are, those, these are words that are synonymous. His blood, his death, his cross. These are the things that unite us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 is a great one. Again, going back to some of the ideas that we can hold on to regarding what the blood of Jesus Christ has done for us, and if you're having a hard time forgiving yourself or accepting the fact that God has forgiven you, uh, this is another classic verse. First John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, meaning if we are in obedience to Jesus, okay? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son cleanses us from all sin. And what's very interesting in that text is there is this close union that we have with one another that describes our connection together. So the book I want to close with in our last few moments together, I want you to turn to the last book of the Bible and I want, you to, I want to just read these verses to you. I'll probably go too quickly. So just write these, write these down and I'll walk you through them. Revelation 1.5. Revelation 5.9, Revelation 12.1, and Revelation 19.13. These aren't, by the way, they're not all. The word blood actually would appear, sometimes it's just describing God's judgment, and blood's going to run as high as a horse's bridle. But these are the ones that describe what Jesus' blood actually does. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, listen to what his blood says here. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits, meaning the Holy Spirit, who, is, who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead and the rulers of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And now has made us a kingdom, made us a kingdom, and made us priests to his God and Father. So it's funny that he uses this phrase, by his blood he has made us both a kingdom and he has made us what? Priests. 
And they sang a new song in heaven, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So how does he do it? By the blood of himself. Now how, what does that do to us? Look at chapter 12, verse 1. This is the part I really love. Oh, dang it, it's not 12.1. It's 12, hold on a second, I'll find it here. Yeah, sorry, that should be an 11. Look at 12.11. So how do we overcome? Look at what it says in verse 11. And they have conquered him. This is our those. How do we conquer in this world? Here's what the Bible says. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their own lives even unto death. So how do we overcome? By the blood of Jesus Christ. And by clinging to that in terms of the, the, of the particular testimony. And the last, sec, the last uh, word that I want to read to you is actually from Revelation 19. Um, because we, also, we often talk, my wife hates blood. She throws up faints all the time whenever there's any blood involved. And I get it. Um, I think it's a little weird, but I, I kind of understand. I get why, 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 why blood is, is, is gross and is terrible. Blood is something that you can't get out of something, right? I wear a white shirt and I get blood on it. But look at what he actually says at the great throne room banquet. Those of us who um, are connected to the Lamb, he actually describes us in this way. Um, he is, speaking of Jesus Christ, sorry, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So here it is talking about Jesus Christ. He is riding on this robe that is dipped in blood. And earlier in this text, what's very interesting is our robes, as we get into the banquet scene in Revelation 19, do you know what they're cleaned with? Blood. They're cleaned with blood. That's just hard for us to fathom. Why? Because we're so much better at doing stuff like this. It's speaking about our own merits, begging, pleasing, double, triple swearing, whatever it is that you want to do. But it takes real people of faith to look at what God has done through Christ and to look at his death and say, Instead of the animal that I've sacrificed or the good thing that I've done, instead of all of these other things, I'm going to trust what God has done for me through the death of Jesus Christ. And this is our message to one another. So when we know somebody who is struggling with forgiveness, what do we remind them of? Not that they're good people, but that Jesus' blood is enough. When someone doesn't think sin is a big deal, what do we remind them? that their sin cost them the blood of Jesus. When someone's worried about God's disposition towards them, what do we remind them of? God's great love for us that he sent his son to shed his blood. And in Hebrews chapter 9, the Hebrew writer is saying, seriously, if that is what God has done, why would you go get a goat? If you have the son of God in his blood, why would you go get a goat? Let's pray. God, thank you 
for Jesus and for what he has done for the reminder of um, over and over and over again in the New Testament of what Jesus' blood has accomplished for us. And so, Father, I pray that we truly would share this message with one another, the costly nature of our sin. Father, the great love that you have for us, the peace that can only come through him. To remember the cross, his death, his blood shed for us. Uh, Father, today, uh, may we truly live in light of your goodness to us found in many different ways, but no way greater than the blood of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.